Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. Yeah, so um, today we are talking with a couple of folks from CPR, Cleveland Pandemic Response. Uh, And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this organization is that unlike other organizations that we've spoken to, this one was actually created in response to the pandemic. It wasn't right a, a pre-existing organization or organism prior to this. It was actually created in response to it. And so that is one of the things that's unusual about CPR. And I love it too, because, because it came out of kind of this this very organic space. Um, they The organizers were also able to, kind of build it in a way that was authentic to their philosophies of being anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and that it it really is structured in a way that it's, you know. It's very nimble, I think, right? So they they describe themselves as as mutual aid society. and, And what that allows them to do is, right, it's that it's a collective of individuals that are working towards some common goal. Instead of, often we see these organizations that are, you know, for lack of better word, bureaucracies, but it's a structure, a hierarchical structure where decisions are made at certain levels and then those decisions necessitate work at other levels. But that's not what's going on at CPR. Uh, it's it's a collective of individuals that have a shared common goal and a, a shared approach for collectively making change act, happen. And so that structure allows, a, I think, a lot more nimbleness uh, and, and probably is one of the reasons why they're, you know, an organization that uh, cropped up in response to the pandemic, even though that may uh, transform over time and, and, and have it be a response to other things. Yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate this episode. Um, and they, they've given me so much to think about in terms of how organizations and collectives um, work together to address needs um, and, and in doing it in just a different way, um, in a way that really challenges what we think think of when we think of how um, we do this type of work. Um, and so I'm super excited today um, to invite or to talk with uh, Janie Lee and Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez. So we're recording. I'm super excited about today's episode. Uh, today we have with us Janie and Chrissy um, with Cleveland Pandemic Response. Um, and I'm, I, I honestly, I'm just so grateful that both of you are here to talk with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is fantastic. I, I love having this conversation with you all um, about CPR, Cleveland Pandemic Response. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your roles, not only in the organization, but like how you came to this work? So around the time of the 
of the Cleveland primary rallies for Biden and Sanders. Those rallies were canceled on like March 11th, March 12th. And um, they were the first national events uh, that were canceled uh, in response to coronavirus. And I was part of organizing an activist gathering after those rallies um, that we had to totally shift and rearrange, right? Because we were getting different information in the moment about like, no, it's still on. No, it's off. And maybe it's some people and we're going to be distanced and all this stuff. You know, nobody knew and everyone was a infectious disease scientist all of a sudden. And it was really, really great. It was wild. Um, I uh, started to ask around in other organizing circles, um, what are we going to do to respond to coronavirus as a movement community? And I have known Janie for a long time. And so someone said, hey, Janie's looking to uh, pull something together. And so my contributions to... Um, to helping that initial, this initial formation of CPR were uh, to help find the hub. I found uh, the recovers, uh, cleveland.recovers.org space uh, through former um, Occupy activists and organizers and folks who did Katrina Response Relief as well, who had used this nonprofit software that made it possible for individuals and organizations to connect with each other and to offer each other goods and services in a non-hierarchical and mutually reciprocal way. And so that was part of my um, initial contribution. I also really helped to facilitate our initial values conversations because we really wanted to make sure that this organism was very much committed to liberation and cross-sectionality and helping people understand that systemic oppression is why so many of our community members are more affected by this pandemic than others. And I helped to uh, facilitate the the sort of uh, base building of our social media platform. So you can find us on basically everything at CPRCLE. Um, that's CPRCLE. And we really wanted to make sure that we were holistic in developing this um, pandemic response. So we didn't just want to meet people's needs, but we wanted people to talk about why we needed our needs met, right? And like address the root causes of oppression and understand abolition and liberation more deeply and sort of push each other along to be more committed to revolutionary love. And so um, that's what that's what we did uh, from my end, from Janie's end. Uh, do you want to talk about how you how you came to to this project, Janie? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a little silly impulse story. Um, yeah. And the same day, I think Christy was mentioning, um, because I think it was declared a pandemic on March 12th, which I remember like pretty distinctly on a Friday night. And I'm just like, you know, sitting on my couch and just, you know, probably having a few drinks and just be looking around and seeing some like mutual aid projects pop up and just feeling like, I don't know, it like something needed to be done. And I kind of thought of like the moniker of CPR because I like puns and silly acronyms. And uh, my roommate came down and I was like, what would, was it like a crazy idea to just start a mutual aid group in Cleveland? And he was like, probably and he's like should I do it and uh and he was just like why not like just go for it and then 
um, seafarers forum. I, I, I set up like a little logo and stuff. And then like people like Chrissy jumped on board and we got linked up with other folks. And uh, that's kind of, yeah, it was just one of those um, like, if not now, when kind of things. Um, and it felt like, you know, I think many of us felt like called to do this kind of work during this time. What was it in your background as community organizers that kind of led you to thinking about uh, doing this project, this this organization? I've done a lot of work with um, Cleveland Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, um, which I'm sure many people have heard about. It's a lot more on people's radars nowadays. Um, but I've worked on some mutual aid projects like the Brake Light Clinic, which was is one of my, like, I consider it like one of my babies. Like it's now like, you know, grown and other people like work on it, but uh, it's where basically you will like set up this shop in a parking lot and just people hold up signs like free brake light repair and people come in and just get their brake lights or other sort of simple car um, mechanical issues fixed. And that's an attempt to get people to, pulled over less by the police because as we all know, like police interactions can end up fatal or worse somehow. So that's something that uh, brought me into like mutual aid work. Also uh, I like discussed this a little bit. Um, I also run like a sex worker mutual aid fund, um, which cause they've been really devastated that community by the COVID because that's obviously work that can't really be safely done during these times. And those are people that fall through cracks. And I think that's sort of like the tenets of mutual aid is like, we want these people who have where institutions and systems have failed them to be able to get the help and resources that they need. Um, and I've also, you know, worked on just, general campaigns um, with DSA to, um, we collected like something like 5,000 signatures to get, we kind of, it was supposed to be like a ballot initiative, but eventually um, city council realized, and this is my favorite part of it, is that they realized the ballot initiative would probably pass. And there were so many people who were for it that they ended up just passing their own ordinance before we could even get it on the ballot. And I just love that idea that like we scared the powers that be into doing the right thing. Cause there were a lot, there was a lot of opposition at the beginning, but I think it's just this idea that people can come together. And that's sort of a mindset I've been trying to since for um, Chrissy's been in the movement, <laughs> like literally decades longer than I have, but in Cleveland, you know, I've been around for like uh, maybe since like, 2014 2015 is when I started getting involved in like racial justice projects abolition work is really important to me and just I sort of saw mutual aid as you know what else can we do during this pandemic there's I'm you know I can donate to nonprofits all day long and obviously they do help people but in order to build that like reciprocal uh, relationship for those people that are homebound, who are immunocompromised, who just, I don't know, for whatever reason, we provide, we don't judge people. We have no guidelines, not guidelines, but like restrictions on who can get help. And it just seemed like it fit in line with all those values that I'd sort of worked with. And it just, I just wanted to continue that with CPR. 
For me, I primarily work with an organism called the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia, or IRTF Cleveland. Um, it, just like most Latin American organizations, we have a very long and descriptive name. <laughs> um, and uh, we do uh, accompaniment work. So we never participate in voluntourism. We never want to do uh, an act or any sort of labor that could be done by someone within the community that they could get paid for. Because as long as we live in capitalism, people need to be uh, making money. And uh, we never go anywhere where we're not invited. We always go where people um, have developed a relationship with us. And we've, we're have we a 40-year-old organization. We were founded because two women from Cleveland were murdered in El Salvador. And what we knew because of our what our partners on the ground told us and what the U.S. took about 25 years to admit was that the U.S. trained and funded the folks who committed that atrocity that killed not only Jean Donovan and Dorothy Kazel, but also Maura Clark and Eda Ford. And they, their family members asked them to leave uh, El Salvador, and they said that they couldn't if as long as the kids on their street couldn't leave the violence, then neither were they. And that's really where we, we as an organism feel that their work really shifted and concretely they committed to the, this concept, this international concept promoted by uh, Food Not Bombs and Caracol and Catholic workers and Mennonite workers and all sorts of workers around the world of solidarity, not charity, right? That we are here to steward relationships. We're walking alongside, we're walking with, we are um, uh, in partnership because our liberation depends on it. There's no uh, sort of saviorism that we that we want or we need. We as people have power when we exercise uh, activity together in in collective, and it's important for us to really push back on that individualist thinking that we're that we're existing in here in our society. But so my work doing accompaniment, we try and make sure that it's very holistic, right? And that where accompaniment looks like physical political, and that does not mean partisan, and psychosocial or spiritual accompaniment, walking alongside, you know, we, the United Nations, they rely on militarized police forces and, and military uh, branches to quote unquote, keep peace. And uh, we don't want peacekeeping. Uh, we, especially right now in our society, we're talking a lot about quote unquote, peaceful protesters and, you know, it's really, there's so many complicated uh, things that go around with that. But really, it's our job to not distract from the original violence of slavery and genocide. Uh, and so uh, we will never, will never comment on anything but that violence, because that's the violence that we're opposed to. But we participate in unarmed civilian protection with nationals and internationals on the ground, along the migrant trail um, between Colombia and the U.S. And my family is from Colombia, so that's what originally brought me to the work. Um, but we do that part-time, and we participate in advocacy um, part-time <clears throat> with folks who do that full-time in New York and Geneva and Washington, D.C. And we advocate uh, on behalf of folks whose family members have been threatened or assassinated, um, who are civilians, who are you know, farmers, preachers, teachers, just civil society leaders, environmental defenders, particularly land and water defenders, 
folks who are Afro-descendant and indigenous. And we're just doing what we can to really witness and to obtain whatever sort of rights these people um, might have. For instance, in Colombia, if you're threatened, you have a right to... Um, to body protection in in El Salvador, you have a right to um, to you know security and and all of these things. So we do that this accompaniment and this advocacy and what uh, how we're bridging things together is by really being based here in Northeast Ohio, contributing to popular education, to helping train medics for civil disobedience, to helping train people. Um, committed to de-escalation and committed to marshalling tactics or or other sort of peacemaking tactics, rather, right? We want to make sure that this is an active verb. And oh, it's complicated and it's really hard to describe, but what but uh, the really the community that I learn the most for from uh, with regard to mutual aid is is the Zapatistas and what we've learned, uh, what my indigenous friends and family members have taught me, uh, in particular, my Latinx family, uh, familia uh, in my political home, mi gente, is this trifecta of really working. We need professional rebels working within the systems. And that includes people who think that they're progressive in higher educational institutions and in nonprofit industrial complexes, right? We need people in those vocations who are professional rebels, who are redirecting resources and energy and and talents to the grassroots. We also need people who are advocates, advocating for reform against these oppressive systems. And simultaneously, and this is where mutual aid comes in, in my opinion, is we need people who are abolitionists, who are trying to create sustainable structures to support and defend each other um, outside of these oppressive systems. And, And there are so many indigenous communities that I've been honored to walk alongside. Um, I'm descendant of Embera peoples in Colombia. Being, uh, you know, separated from um, those practices is a pain that I carry that I'm constantly seeking to heal from. And participating in this work is part of my healing. And I know Janie and I talked about about that before. We uh, She mentioned recently in a conversation, you know, re- uh, taking care of yourself is also a revolutionary act. And so if I haven't already dropped it, uh, I want to make sure that Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, and the resource um, on Instagram uh, at the Nat Ministry are both really amazing and inspirational folks of color, whim- femmes of color, uh, Black uh, women who are teaching the entire world how to start um, healing themselves through really um, re- through radical uh, self love. It's something that we do when we are uh, really when we are really aware of what our needs are, right? When we when we ask, <clears throat> and so um, what we want to do is have a society. I think that uh, that really honors people's requests. And there acknowledges their harm, the harm that they live through, um, that we live through. And uh, and then in honoring that, we're able to recognize our abundance, right? So um, I was able, and not only did I receive a phone, right? I also have given um, 100 bottles of dish soap, right? And I've also been able to coordinate um 
and with Janie's help, a huge amount of uh, supplies for um, protest and civil disobedience that is um, liberatory in, in our city, right? I've been able to donate those things. And it's because um, when we rely on our relationships, we can recognize what like abundance exists around us, right? When we pool our resources together, that sort of thing. For me, I learned about mutual aid through the Zapatistas in Mexico. So just this like creating uh, a new system outside of uh, the oppressive systems that we're existing in to, to really learn to support and care for each other. And as I've mentioned before, it's non-hierarchical. So um, there's no uh, expectation that any need that we can meet every need, but there's also a point where we remember, where we realize how much extra we, we live in and how much we can offer to people um, as part of building relationship and building community. So um, we mentioned a lot non-hierarchical. That means that no one person has the right to make um, decisions that affect other people in the community uh, negatively, right? Um, but also that everyone has the autonomy and the authority to contribute at their capacity, and we hope um, and expect actually that they that they do that. And that's not just um, we've taken multi approaches to this. That's not just by me getting people's needs met through the Cleveland.recovers.org hub. It's also socializing with people, right? Especially in the middle of a pandemic and having public discourse about what the fuck is going on in our society and about the, you know, the multiple pandemics that we exist in. We've named, we named them all already, right? We've named patriarchy and uh, we've named the evil of slavery and we've named the evils of, de- of genocide in our society. And we want to, um, we, you know, for me, one thing that I've learned in my organizing, and this is from Dr. David Ragland, is his work on reparations, is really that reconciliation cannot happen without reparations, and reparations are not a one-time check and a one-time deal. They are an acknowledgement of harm, they are a guarantee of non-repeat, and they are a reciprocal relationship that people who survived and who know what it takes for them to survive and thrive without doing harm to other people get to actually say what it is that they need to continue surviving and thriving. And that looks different for all different types of people, right? For me, as someone who is Latinx and who's been racialized in a certain way, who's displaced from my indigenous homelands, the thing that I need in the world is freedom of movement. And so we talk about that in the hub, right? I'm the product of a civil war. And now I'm here seeing the beginning of another one. You know, I need for there to be less militarization in the world. And so that's the thing that we talk about on the hub, right? And in our social media platforms is how can we amplify the ideas of liberation uh, for all people, knowing that when we rise from the bottom, we all rise together. And how can we um, have uh, civil discourse that helps each of us evolve our thinking? Because we can't, we um, we like to say uh, solidarity, not charity. And uh, Caracol, uh, Food Not Bombs is an, you know, an amazing network internationally, really, 
uh, just like the Catholic workers and the Mennonite workers. They're amazing networks of um, communities internationally who have really <coughs> interrogated what it means to, to um, have resources and give them away, right? And have, uh, they've all done a lot to really make sure our the way that we ex exchange and interact with each other is based in solidarity and not a top-down charity approach. We don't want any saviors. We don't need any saviors. We don't believe in any saviors that, that um, no politician is going to save us, but we know we can save us if we learn to support and defend each other. And we're the only ones we got, you know, and, and when we, get spiritual about it when we're, when we remember that we are our ancestors wildest dreams, it gives us strength and hope to keep going. So solidarity, not charity. We're really trying to make sure that uh, we're pushing each other farther along in this journey for liberation and abolition. And that can be really inspiring, but we want to make sure that people are doing just as much internal work to know themselves, to know their lane, as they are doing external work, right? So they can't just be all charity, right? And we want to get away from charity. We need this to be solidarity. And it also needs to be understanding and undoing the internalized trauma and harm that I that I hold uh, so that I don't continually re-traumatize other people. Uh, and we've seen that in... Cleveland in the movements, uh, you know, for, for many years, traumatized people get in the movement because they're traumatized and their li their liberation depends on it. I know that's why I'm in the movement. And, uh, and unfortunately when we don't heal or work on healing, we end up hurting other people in the process. And so we want to make sure in all that we're doing at CPR, that we're approaching things holistically and not just uh, and not just seeing things through a binary. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that it's really compelling to to folks to see that hierarchical organizations are, I mean, structured in violence, right? Because you're top down, you're forcing things. But but perhaps people don't understand the value of non-hierarchical organizations. Why is that kind of structure? particularly useful in dealing with issues, I mean, all sorts of issues, but issues like how do we take on what's going on during a pandemic? That's a great question. You know, it's it's an approach that has barely been tried, right? So we're trying something new. We don't want to keep trying the same old, same old that isn't working, right? And we want, and we see that in every aspect of our society, in education, in healthcare, in electoralism. Uh, but um, I participate in at IRTF and in uh, multiple national organisms that I'm a part of as well, including the Fellowship of Reconciliation. We have co-directors, we have co-chairs uh, of our um, decision-making bodies. Um, we we've learned a lot from organisms and organizations like Equal Exchange who are cooperative models, right? And we see these alternatives and these new ways of being and practicing how we engage with each other that make it that make us um, 
you know, ultimately people have to be responsible for decisions that they make, but we can share that responsibility. And so one thing that I really love about IRTF personally is that like, I've learned what it means to have a co-director where I share responsibility, but also where I get to um, share the joys of, of success with as well. Right. And so I think that that has been really beautiful. Janie, just Janie already pointed out, you know, we see ourselves as a community um, and in some ways uh, a family uh, and families even have dysfunctions, right? And we have to go through um, conflict with each other. And because we're all committed to the whole, um, we and and really we're trying in this very individualistic society to focus on the collective it, we are committed, I think, to, to moving through those conflicts for the good of, of the whole. Yeah, and bouncing off of that, I think the real, um, like, inherent, what you get out of a non-hierarchical, or non-hierarchical organization is that the hierarchy and those power dynamics often inherently um, create oppression and institutions that harm people. And that's one of my favorite things. Mutual aid and the idea of a mutual aid society is that once you remove those power structures, that people are sort of like inherently good. Um, and it's like a belief that people will help each other and will reciprocate. And that's an idea that, um, and I think that's something that if you do any sort of work um, or liberation work, you have to like truly believe in humanity as much as like, you know, there's certain, you know, people that, you know, drive me up a wall sometimes. Like, I, believe that like at the at the end of the day like whether it's due to trauma whether it's due to this system that has really screwed them over that in a mutual aid society where we don't have you know prisons we don't have indigenous people being displaced that people can really make that solidarity work and come together and help each other so i think that's what's so important about the non-hierarchy is to try and create a system where we don't need that like almost like boss employee dynamic or that oppressor oppressed dynamic. So I, I think that's why it was so important for us to have that at CPR was because um, we are not a nonprofit. We don't have like a board of directors. We go over ideas together um, and we talk through disagreements and that's how we sort of believe the world should be is like, you know, everything's an interpersonal sort of, work in progress and that's how we want to operate and that's i think how we want to see society operate i love it it's prefigurative that's the, the terminology i've been throwing around a lot lately um <laughs> creating the space that you want to see in the rest of the world and so i i love i absolutely love the idea of the mutual aid society i love seeing it in practice you know it, and it, it creates opportunities too to you know see new things, right? New realities. And so my next, I guess my question is, you know, what are, you know, having set up CPR in this way as a mutual aid society, uh, non-hierarchical, volunteer-led, you know, what surprised you about this process so far? You know, right? Because it you launched in March, is that right? You kind of came together around March. What have you been surprised by? And and maybe even like, are there any unexpected barriers that you've, you know, had to navigate as well? I think one big barrier uh, I sort of touched on a little bit earlier is just like how, 
much the pandemic has affected people. Like we've tried to get um, more organizers on board. We're a pretty small crew and we're all of us are stretched pretty thin. And it's just um, people are really tired and exhausted. And like, I, I'm one, I have a tendency to be like, no, if my mental health is good, I'm like not going to be affected by these external factors. And just realizing like, this is like a really crushing sort of, difficult time regardless of whatever pre-existing issues you you may have so just allowing organizers to have more space and making sure that we don't burn people out um so like one thing we had to do uh chris was saying like at the beginning we uh were taking all sorts of needs and requests and then we recently had a priorities call where we are saying we mostly just focus on pandemic supplies, cleaning supplies, and hygiene supplies. Um, So we really had to narrow our scope just because we really could not provide for everything. Um, Because unfortunately, I think in a, you know, ideal world where it's a non, like post-pandemic world, like this sort of idea could spread further and we would have maybe more people on on our crew and we could provide more um, items and more resources for people, but it's just one of those things where I think an unexpected barrier has been just getting people through the pandemic while also doing the work, like just taking care of each other. Cause I'm sort of used to like organizations where people are just kind of like on it all the time. Um, but especially like, I know Stephanie has talked about how, you know, seeing all of these stories of these people getting evicted, all their stuff thrown out, people not being able to pay for diapers is like kind of traumatizing to see day after day to read these stories over and over. And just the importance of understanding that the pandemic takes a really harsh toll on people's emotional and spiritual health. Um, and yeah, that's the like one really, like the biggest thing I can think of um, that sort of like, yeah, it caught me off guard because I just sort of, you know, I think a lot of us just like launched into it and we were like, we're going to do this thing, but it's just been, it's been tough, you know, as it goes on to like, as much as you're dedicated to the mission to keep that steam going with and taking care of yourself. Yeah. Uh, we want to drop some resources, the nap ministry and pleasure activism have been, uh, great resources for uh, addressing care, radical care issues, and have been great inspiration to a lot of us. We like to repost their stuff on some of our pages. I think that uh, building off of what Janie said, we are really, you know, I've mentioned this already. We're te- we're also teaching people how to support and defend each other through our actions rather than our words, right? So we're we're listening to what's going on in the mainstream media, right? And we're listening to uh, the stories. I think really importantly, storytelling is is a revolutionary act as well. We're listening to the stories of people. In our communities, our neighbors, uh, Janie and others on our team helped to develop a street ambassador program where we were training folks to um, knock on folks' doors or leave flyers in people's mailboxes and start to really engage with their neighbors around um, what their neighbors and neighborhood needs. And so teaching people how to support and defender is 
defend each other is also about building coalition. You know, as a non-hierarchical organization, we don't need to be the biggest. We don't need, we don't want to create our own hierarchy, right? We want, we are in deep partnership with amazing organizations. Our friends, uh, Black Spring Cleveland just launched and they not only are doing popular education work and civil disobedience, direct action, they're also doing uh, community garden projects and pop-up meal programs in neighborhoods in Cleveland. That's abundance and that's mutual aid. And when mutual aid communities can work together, you know, then we can form coalitions that are stronger together too. I We don't want to be voice voices for the voiceless. I don't believe that anyone is voiceless. I think that everyone has some form of communicating with others. And that might be through their looks, that might be through their facial expressions, that might be through written word, through oral uh, tradition. It could be through their art, you know, or just their their um, actual behaviors, right? But um, what we want to do is to amplify all of the voices from the grassroots and really build our own tables, right? We, we don't have a board of directors. We're not... Um, beholden to uh, anyone right now. We're building our own table and we are an example to others to build their own tables as well, right? And to make those tables long and wide and inclusive, right? Because we, we don't also, we don't want tokens. We don't want figureheads. We don't want one invitation to the already oppressive table. We want uh, the majority of the table to be people with real needs who uh, have real demands who know how to survive. Now, it, the organization is called, right, Cleveland Pandemic Response, but you guys are, uh, I mean, what you're building is more than just a response to a pandemic. So what is your vision for the organization going forward? We had discussed a little bit, like maybe as the pandemic, you know, wanes. It's probably going to be something that, you know, comes and goes, but like even becoming like Cleveland people's response, like just something that is based on people power, which is what really we're trying to build always in like any sort of liberation, organizing work. I think that's something that would be really exciting and wonderful. Yeah, I just, I think it's important for like us as a mutual aid society to make sure that people who often fall through the cracks because institutions don't aren't able to provide for them. Like a lot of nonprofits, you can't get access to like Medicaid it takes like 600 hoops to like jump through that. A lot of people are denied housing because they're like, you know, there's a lottery for like public housing. I actually run a sex worker mutual aid fund as well. And that's one of those things where sex workers are like really excluded from nearly every single type of pandemic relief because like it's not, it's criminalized currently just for people trying to make a living and doing work that is, is the best decision for their life. So it's, I think really important to maybe just, make it a response to helping like uplift all those voices. Like Chrissy was saying, like um, using sex workers in this example, it's been a really popular topic for people to write about recently, but there's been in the sex worker community, a lot of like, yo, why are you not asking sex workers to write about, 
the actual articles? Why are you just like pontificating about stuff when you could actually be talking directly to the people, which applies to like so many other facets of things. Like why are you not actually interviewing, you know, black indigenous folks about those issues? Why are you not talking to undocumented folks when raising like uplifting their voices instead of just some, you know, like white dude journalists just doing research and just posing some like polemic essay on the Atlantic or something. Um, and it's just really about, I think in the end, maybe we can create this world where everyone has that voice. And especially in Cleveland, I feel like there's, we're one of those cities where we are mired with so many problems that maybe we can create more of a culture of where we can take care of each other and we can hear those voices more. As we face a lot of problems, like I mentioned, like lead, um, gentrification is a huge issue in this city, as in many cities. And I just I hope that maybe CPR, we can work towards uh, just a more in the future, just continue our like liberation focused uh, mindset and framework. Like when the up, the recent uprising um, began with you know the George Floyd protests. We had a whole discussion about values and stuff, and we our current like little icon is just like CPR supports the movement for Black Lives. Like we we see that there's not only a pandemic with COVID, but also like a racial pandemic, and that's something that if we don't address that, we can't actually address the pandemic either because you know we study after study has shown that. Black folks are so disproportionately affected by COVID. And just, I think, realizing that pandemic relief is not just the COVID pandemic, but every sort of oppressive pandemic um, in the end. And that's something we want to work towards. Yeah, I think that we really wanted to make sure that this, when we started this commitment too, that that, you know, we saw that the administration wanted to rush through this pandemic and coronavirus. And we, from... Mark, you know, it's such an interesting story, actually, when we get into the nitty ditty details of of how we started, because, you know, Cleveland was actually where the country started to close on a national level. We had scheduled primary rallies by uh, uh, Biden and Sanders on March 11th, um, March 11th or March 12th either one of those days and they were canceled in Cleveland and they were the first national events to be canceled across the country. And um, though cities had been shutting down. Right. And we had been organizing an like activist gathering for the night of those rallies. Right. And we had been really working on um, as a, as a community, we'd been working on like, trying to start building these coalitions that, you know, that we've, we're always talking about because there's so much work to do and we, you know, we're stronger together and all of that stuff. And then we're in the throes of that chaos and everyone focus on Cleveland. That, that is when Janie and others are starting to say, wait, we're going to have to do something about coronavirus and, and pandemic response. And people are not prepared to handle what's coming up and people need food and they need protection, personal protection and all of this stuff. <laughs> and so I think uh, we, from the very first day committed to this being an 18 month project at least. 
And as we've grown as a little family, as a community, as people said, uh, the very clever Cleveland people's response. I love that Janie picked the CPR acronym. It's just like the cutest mutual aid project in the whole country. And I mean, we're by bi I'm biased, but it is really amazing. And we didn't get, you know, the ideas of mutual aid on our own, though, like there are networks every uh, practically every city in the country has some sort of mutual aid project going on but changing to be the cleveland people's response um the idea of it is exciting we hope to continue to do our part we hope that people feel comfortable and welcome participating in movement in this way and it's been really beautiful and we've been really grateful for all the organizers who've stepped on at different points because we've been doing this since march right like in May, some of us were burning out. I would say the first round of us, Janie and I in particular, I can only speak for myself though, we're really burning out. And we were like, we need some college students to come and help us uh, with their summer break because we're so tired. And, and as you saw, you know, there's this new uprising, right? And so we had, as community organizers, a lot more and different things on our plates. And we did get an influx of people. And, and I think that's about the time that Steph came on and helped uh, start coordinating our hub. And we're so, so grateful to her and to Kayla. And oh my gosh, there's so many people. I don't want to miss any of them. But they really started managing the interactions on the hub when we uh, when our work commitments uh, started to get in the way. And even since then, right? And so late summer, we have people who are like, hey, I'm moving back to Cleveland and I really want to make sure that I get engaged in organizing where I'm living. And I know that this is an age of digital organizing and I could just keep doing what I'm doing, but I really want to make sure that we are rooted, right, and grounded. So we have had some folks um, moving back to Cleveland who've jumped in to our social media team. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the game really stepped up because I was slacking in my duties. And um, and we're so, so, so grateful for, for the folks who stepped up in, in that way too. And we're just hopeful that this that this is a community space, uh, a place where people can can engage in um, movement and mutual aid, and that people, you know, take turns. We don't want any one um, leader forever. We want people to really share this responsibility of of taking care of each other. It's fantastic, and you know, I, I want I want to be really thoughtful about how I frame this question, um, right? Because you've been. It, you know, you don't want any saviors to jump in, something that I think is excellent to say out loud, right? I think that sometimes people will think it, um, but do it doesn't get the conversation going as often. And, and so being able to have that conversation, I think, is really powerful. But there are probably people who are listening um, or, or who are really interested in the work that are like, what what can I do? Like, Or how can I become part of this community? Um, not just donate, but just join and, and find that those relationships like what does that look like to you all how could how might people be able to to find out more and be involved uh sure I mean like we we call ourselves like we don't have like I know a lot of groups have like you know steering committees or like stuff like that we call ourselves like core team members and those are just like core organizers so a lot of it is um I think this is the ironic part about community organizing is I think people think of like activists as like, you know, shouting from the rooftops, you know, 
chaining themselves, which is, is there's obviously a place for that. Um, but so much of it is just like administrative Zoom meetings and like social media. And um, right now we recently got like a $5,000 grant to that we did a whole just budget meeting for two hours to figure out how to buy the like best prices for like wholesale hygiene and cleaning supplies and stuff like that. So I think what the best way to get involved is just to realize I is I think a lot of people who have not done organizing before get like really intimidated. They're like, I haven't been in the streets. I haven't, you know, I haven't been in the scene, but I think the way is literally just to like jump in, like, don't be scared, start like just take on a project and run with it. And that's some of like, we've definitely had people um, who like weren't uh, necessarily like very uh, into, like weren't in the liberation movement, um, but have been amazing and super stepped up. Um, you know, Steph, obviously one of our other um, organizers is Jamie. And it's just been, I think just if you are someone who wants to take initiative and you want to, if you want to do something while you're like at home, scared for everyone and scared for yourself, I know uh, Chrissy mentioned Black Spring Cleveland and one of the things the founder Jasmine said in one of her speeches, she's like, this is not even something I want to be doing. This is something I'm doing just because I want to live and I want my friends to live. And I think it's that kind of mentality that prevents like saviors from happening is just like, you're not going in it for the clout. You're not going in it for cookies or anything. You're going in it because you're like, I have to because who else is going to do it? And I think that's, those are the kind of people we need because that, that type of like humble and like that type of humility is like what allows that non-hierarchy to grow. So I think obviously like, don't be too humble because we want you to like come in and just be like, yes, I'm going to do this thing. But I think that's, yeah, like literally just like, email info at cprcle.org um we we have a little like onboarding call we will like talk to you on the phone and just jump we do all our organizing on slack and zoom so we invite people onto the slack and we just yeah just like jump in get on our we have a monday planning call every week i think people get scared because they're like i'm not in the core team i haven't been here that long i'm like just get on the monday planning call and we'll we'll tell you what's going on and we'll get you into a project and there's so many like roles to be filled like like steph and kayla doing the amazing match coordinating work social media um i run a lot of just like the administrative stuff like um handling like the money for the grant and then like you could always use help with working on the website doing research i think just people who realize that um it's all these little nitty-gritty steps that in the end make these huge differences and those are the kind of um if you're that kind of person and i don't know we just try and be welcoming inviting and we want you on board and you know come help us help other people Yeah, so that uh, email address again is info at cprcle.org. And like Janie said, you can join one of our weekly meetings. Um, We also have like um, projects that we'll advertise on our um, social media for if you want like a smaller, uh, more specific commitment. 
we also, Kayla and Steph, um, are always welcome to have folks help uh, with the match coordination. And uh, Kayla, <laughs> Kayla and Steph are so gracious. They're like, we'll take you for, you know, 10 minutes or or. 10 hours, like as much capacity as you have, we, we could use your help though. You know, we always love a, a full hour commitment or more, <laughs> but I think uh, it's important for folks to, to find community with us. So engaging um, by being a donor um, or engaging by um, contributing to the public forum, Cleveland pandemic response community forum, on Facebook um, or engaging uh, in with us on any of our social media platforms to write, write to sort of um, tease out like the questions that they might have about, um, you know, abolition or liberation. Uh, and as Janie said, you know, there's, there's folks who, ha who weren't necessarily in the movement before, but they, I mean, I know I've had amazing conversations with Jamie about just like, how excited she is, I think, to redirect her vocational focus in um, in these ways that can be more empowering, right? And that um, can be, uh, can give us greater autonomy and sovereignty over our own lives, right? So there's more, there's a role for everyone. We need healers, we need cooks, we need teachers, we need admins, we need drivers, we need donors, right? Um, in the, there's a role for everyone in the movement and, and you don't have to always be on the same page with everyone as long as, right, you're not stepping on someone else's liberation. Um, one, one thing that the Poor People's Campaign says is they, they have a campaign right now called the MORE Tour and MORE stands for Mobilize, Organize, Register, and Educate or Engage. <clears throat> and so there's... One thing that I've, and one thing additionally that I've learned from my political home that I mentioned, Mi Gente, is that we don't need more of us. We need more from us. Um, so there, so each person, you don't have to be overwhelmed by, as the Talmud said, by the enormity of the world's grief, but neither are you able to like look away or to, to, to deny it or to deny your responsibility to do it, to doing something, to changing it. And you don't have to change all of it, but you do have to do your part. And so it is so hard. I, I do want to, um, wrap up this comment by saying it's so hard uh to remain focused and engaged when we are going through collective ptsd and collective trauma um, on a large mass scale and yet we can't look away as long as we can help it right do check in with your needs and and all of that but like we must do something and uh and so we that's all we ask we ask the people you know, do what they can. Thank you both so much for coming on. It was just amazing having you guys here with us. It was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor and it's so wonderful to get to meet you. Please stay in touch. And if there's ways that we can support each other's work, um, we'll be glad to do it. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. 